0: Good morning. How are you? I'd like you to join me in your Bible in James chapter 2. And James begins this chapter with a phrase that those of us who understand the gospel would see as the root of the spiritual life, the key to salvation, the fundamental of all fundamentals. It's in the beginning, or in the middle, I'm sorry, of verse 1, where it says, Your faith... In our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear somebody say those words, I have faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we say, that's clear, that's concise, that's it. We celebrate inside, we rejoice inside, we say, praise God, brother, praise God, sister, we're in the same family. But then James goes on to point out a pattern of conduct that is inconsistent with that faith. And it's the phrase we saw at the end of verse 1. Personal favoritism. Prejudice. Judging others by externals. It's elevating one person above another based on their wealth or their physical attractiveness or their intellect or their skin color. James is saying faith in the glorious Lord... And prejudice toward another person is mutually exclusive. And then to the dismay of those of us who like to be prejudiced and kind of use excuses for why we're that way, James lays out a solemn declaration at the end of the first paragraph in verse 13 where he says, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. James tells us that this prejudiced person who shows no mercy, this prejudiced person who is destitute of the spirit of kindness, this prejudiced person who shows nothing of the character of God who is love, nothing of the character of God whose mercies are new every morning, Nothing of the character of God who does not look at the outward appearance but looks on the heart. This prejudiced person, however loud his profession, however orthodox his creed, however high his hopes, will end up being condemned, being subject to judgment without mercy. That's pretty sober. And I think at this point, there's a question that's sort of dangling in the air. And that question is, what is the nature of saving faith? And James is going to help us answer that question in the rest of this chapter. In a passage that Christians have struggled with, they have argued about, they have misunderstood for centuries. Some have accused James in this passage of teaching salvation by works. Some have accused James in this passage of teaching salvation by faith plus works. This is the passage that Martin Luther couldn't manage to reconcile with Romans 3.28, and so he referred to this whole letter as a right strawy epistle. But before we find ourselves guilty of judging James on the basis of externals, I want us to look carefully at what he has to say. And we're going to cover the rest of this chapter in two messages. But this morning, I want to start by just looking at verses 14 to 19. And I want to pick out three things here that we can say about faith. Number one is in verses 14 to 17. If your faith doesn't work, it's dead. It's inoperative. It's worthless. Faith without works is no good to you, and it's no good to anybody else. Now notice how he says this in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? I want you to notice something very important here. James does not say that this person has faith. He tells us this person says he has faith. I would circle that word says. This is a professor who has no works. He claims to have faith, but there's been no change in his life. In fact, his life contradicts his profession. James presents us with this individual, and then he asks two important questions. Question number one, and by the way, in the Greek, these questions are written expecting a negative answer. The first question is, what use is it? What profit is it? What good is it? And the answer is none. And then he asks a second question, which is the most important question, and that is, can that faith save him? It's important to see that word that or the. It's the article in front of it. He's not saying can faith save him because we know faith can save him. He's saying, can that faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? Is a faith that a person says he has but causes no change in his life really saving faith? And James says, no. Now, a lot of people would say yes to these two questions. It's very popular today to say, you know, if a person has some understanding of the gospel... And they have some measure of belief that results in salvation. It doesn't really matter that the belief is barren, doesn't really matter that what's being called faith is cold and indifferent. A lot of people have the idea that anything that is not blatant disbelief is belief. He's not hating on Jesus, so I guess he loves him. He's not actively against Jesus. So I guess he's for him. So you don't have to count the cost. You don't have to lay down your life. You don't have to pick up your cross. Jesus was just having a bad day when he said that stuff. All you have to do is nod in agreement. All you have to do is raise your hand. All you have to do is sign a card. You see, I am convinced that many of us have a distorted view of grace. And we view grace as God giving us a gift, and that gift is all about our inheritance, eternal life. And it's true. The gift of God is eternal life, but you know what eternal life is? Jesus said in John seventeen three, eternal life is knowing God the Father and knowing me, his Son. Eternal life is a relationship. And it's not... Pie in the sky, by and by. It's a relationship right now, today. And a lot of us view grace, and we have this distorted view of grace, that grace is like something God has given us, and we become, we kind of move from being a rebellious poor kid, spiritually, to a spoiled rich kid, spiritually. You ever been around spoiled rich kids? We took a recent flight and had one sitting behind us talking real loud. Disgusting. Kid had everything. His dad was paying for him to go for the summer, the whole summer somewhere, just to vacation. And he was criticizing his dad, telling us, t- telling somebody back there how he had taken his dad's cell phone and, and this and that, and he just had total disregard for his dad, but he was entitled. I think that's the expectation some of us have for our salvation. We move from poor, rebellious kids spiritually to spoiled rich kid. We're really kind of estranged from our father, but we're entitled. Well, let me tell you this morning, that's not God's grace. Let me read to you what God's grace is. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You see, grace doesn't simply save me from the punishment of sin. It saves me from the power of sin. Grace is not something that just takes care of my future. It takes care of my present. This verse tells me it gives me a brand new desire and a brand new power to say no to sin And yes to God. And if that is not happening at some level in your life, then there needs to be a big question mark about your faith. The Bible says that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. So if you claim to be saved, and you're still embracing your sins, you're still loving your sins, you're still at peace with your sins then something's wrong with what you're calling salvation. And something is wrong with what you're calling grace. Or as James would tell us, going back to the root, there is something wrong with what you are calling faith. Because he asked the question, is that kind of faith saving faith? And the answer is no. And then as James is so good at, he gives an illustration in verses 15 and 16. Notice the illustration, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? James depicts a brother and sister. They're in need of the two most basic physical needs, food and clothing. You come along and give them what? Words. And James says, what use is that? I saw a Snoopy cartoon where Charlie Brown and Linus are sitting in the house. They're bundled up by the fire and it's snowing outside. And through the window they can see Snoopy. He's shivering in front of an empty dog dish. Charlie and Linus discuss the fact that they ought to do something. And so they go outside to Snoopy and they walk up to him and they say, Be of good cheer. That's James' illustration. You see, when you see a brother or sister in need, they have no food, they have no clothing, and you say, I'm deeply moved. I cannot find words to express how much I care. I feel your pain. The Lord bless you. What have you done? Nothing. You see, when you walk away, that person is just as hungry and as naked as before. Now, those are wonderful words. Those are words of love without the actions of love. And when you have the words of love without the actions of love, you don't have love. And what's James' conclusion? Look at verse 17. Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Just as love that is said and not shown is dead, faith that is said and not shown is dead. It's lifeless. It's worthless. The profession of faith without works is no good to you, and it's no good to anybody else. Now, a lot of people today say they have faith. I was watching CNN this week, and I noticed along the bottom there was a scrolling uh, information thing, and it said uh, in a recent poll, 73% of Americans say they're Christians. Do you believe three out of four Americans are Christians? I don't. You know why? Because their actions deny it. I watched the Cardinal game Friday. Did you see the game Friday? I stayed up because I thought they were going to lose, but I just wanted to, you know, console them. And then they end up winning, and then they're having one of these champagne showers. I've always wanted to have one of those. I probably ought to plan one. But they're having the champagne shower, and you think, and a lot of times you see that event. I didn't hear it Friday because I went to bed. But a lot of times they're having the champagne shower, and they pull the guy aside, and he wipes his eyes, and they ask him a couple questions, and he says, I'd just like to thank the good Lord. And what do we say? He's a Christian. He said the word Lord, he's a Christian. Well, not necessarily. Because Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, everybody who has a Christian bumper sticker is not a Christian. John Bunyan had a great ability to draw pictures with words. Listen to his picture of a guy he called Mr. Talkative. He talks of prayer, of repentance, of the new birth, and of faith. But he knows but only to talk of them. I have been in his family, and his house is as empty of pure religion as the white of an egg is a flavor. Talk is cheap. You have one tongue in your head, you have two in your shoes. And no matter what the tongue in your head is saying, the tongues in your shoes have the last word. Because they tell what you really believe in by what you do and where you go. And that's the point James makes in verses 14 to 17. A faith that only talks and doesn't act is as worthless as a love that only talks and doesn't act. That's why in the Bible, you see that when it talks about judgment, it always says that God is going to judge what? He's going to judge our deeds. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the nations are before him, he's going to divide them, some on the right and some on the left. And he's going to say to those on the left, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, To one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Go away into eternal punishment. Now, why is punishment based on actions? Well, because actions are the expression of faith. A faith that only talks and doesn't walk is dead. A faith that never moves from the tongue in my mouth to the tongue in my shoes is dead. It is non-existent. It is not saving faith. The reformers used to say it this way. We are saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. Genuine saving faith, given the opportunity, will always produce fruit. So if your faith doesn't work, it's dead. And then James says the second thing. If your faith doesn't work, it's defenseless. That's in verse 18. If you don't have works, there's no practical way that you can convince anyone else that your faith is real. Notice what he says in verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Somebody walks up to this guy who says he has faith, but has no works. And he says, show me your faith. And the guy can't do it because he has no works. You see, faith is odorless. Faith is weightless. Faith is invisible. Anybody can claim it. But when someone comes up and says those two words in verse 18, show me, there's only one way that you can show the reality of faith. And that's through works. You see, if you told me that this was a fire, I would have a few questions about that. I would say, you know, if that's a fire, it should be putting off light and if that is a fire then it ought to be putting off heat if you said to me this is a fountain i would say well it looks like a keyboard but if it is a fountain then it ought to be putting out water you see as i evaluate that the lack of evidence not only leads me to doubt what you say but actually proves to me that what you're saying is not so. If I told you that I believe in being healthy, in fact, I'm somewhat of a fanatic about it. I'm a health fanatic. And while I'm telling you I'm a health fanatic, I am vegging on the couch with a Twinkie in each hand or as the Nehemiah Project guys taught me, they taught me about McSweets. Ever have a McSweet? It's when you buy a double hamburger at McDonald's, you open it up and you put one of their apple pies in the middle, close it back up and eat it. That's a McSweet. So I'm telling you I'm a health fanatic, and I've got a McSweet in one hand and a Twinkie in the other. And you say, well, Dan, do you eat right? No. Do you exercise? No. Do you get a regular checkup at the doctor? No. See, you would not be convinced that I'm a health fanatic. In fact, you would be convinced that I am not a health fanatic. You see, faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can see the results, right? And the results of faith is what works in my life. The kids sing a song. It goes like this. If you're saved and you know it, say amen. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, stomp your feet. If you're saved and you know it, do all three. Kind of a goofy song. But in the chorus, it says this. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. And I think James would like that song because that's what he's telling us here. Our faith is not determined by what we do, but our faith is demonstrated by what we do. So if your faith doesn't work, it's defenseless. And then thirdly, He says, if your faith doesn't work, it's demonic. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now, James, in this verse, I think, gets to the real problem of this fellow who's saying he has faith and has no works. And that is that he has never come to genuine saving faith because understand this in this passage James is not saying that you're saved by works and James is not saying that you're saved by faith plus works what James is saying is that you if you have real genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ it will produce fruit in your life if you have real faith in Jesus Christ it will change your life it has to Because the Bible says when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are born again. The Bible says you become an altogether new creature. The Bible says that God by his spirit comes and takes up residence in your life. Something has to change. And so James in this verse points out to us two things that fall short of saving faith. The first is intellectual assent. Or what I would call historical belief. Believing some facts about God or about Jesus. See, James says, you believe, that's great. That puts you right up there with the demons. A while back, the Gallup pollsters pulled Protestants in the United States to see if they believe in God. They found that 95% of Baptists believe in God. 93% of Presbyterians believe in God. 85% of Methodists believe in God. But if the pollsters could have gone to hell and pulled the demons, they would have gotten a 100% response. Demons are great theologians. Just, Just a surface visit of the New Testament, I found these things. They believe in God. They believe in the deity of Christ because when Jesus came, they kept going, we know who you are, the Son of God. They believe that Jesus is the ultimate judge. They believe in hell, and they believe that they're going there. So some of the best theologians ever are going to hell. What's that tell us? Well, it tells us that saving faith is more than believing about God. It's more than conceding to a set of facts. You can know a lot about the Bible. Quote Bible verses inside out. You can know a lot about God. You can know a lot about Jesus and not be saved. Because saving faith is more than that historical belief. I I met a lady one time in Marble Hill, an older lady, who uh, didn't believe that we had put a man on the moon. Her relatives had brought the front page that says, man lands on the moon to her house, and showed her, and she said, I don't believe that. Do you believe that? That we stuffed some guys in a little capsule and shot it off? And it went 211,463 miles into the air and landed softly on the moon. And then they got out and walked around and got back inside and came back. You believe that? I do. But you know what? The fact that I believe that or don't believe that has very little effect on my life. See, that's historical belief. I believe in Hitler. Hitler but I'm not a Nazi. I believe in Osama bin Laden, but I'm not an Al-Qaeda terrorist. I believe in Karl Marx, but I'm not a socialist. And a lot of times when people talk about their faith in Jesus Christ, they're talking about that same kind of historical belief in the facts. Now, don't get me wrong. The facts are important. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, that the gospel is that he died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. Those facts are important, but simply putting your historical belief in Jesus is not saving faith. So it's not an intellectual assent. Second thing James points out that falls short of saving faith is an emotional response. Because if you'll notice, the demons not only only believe intellectually. They respond emotionally. It says they tremble. They tremble. A lot of people have an emotional response and call it saving faith. You you can come to church and get a quiver in your liver and not be saved. I used to tremble a lot when I was a kid. My dad was an evangelist. And I was not saved until later in life. And so there were times when I would be stirred emotionally listening to the gospel, but I didn't respond. I remember one time as a young boy, I was in Nashville and and, uh, came home. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and she just really focused on taking care of three kids. And I came home that day from school, opened the door, came in, yelled, mom, no mom, go in the other room. There's the ironing board set up with the iron on top, plugged in, clothes laying there, no mom. I immediately had this thought. It's the rapture. And I'm left behind. And I was shook. I was shook. I ran around the house. I ran around the neighborhood until I finally found mom, and I'm embracing her, and she's going, what's wrong with you? You see, I was shook emotionally. But I wasn't saved until years later. Saving faith is more Than an emotional response. You remember Jesus' familiar parable of the sower in Matthew 13. He says, Some seed falls on the rocky ground. And this is the way he describes it. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. There's emotion. But, says Jesus, it's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises, he falls away. Saving faith is more than an intellectual assent to some facts. And saving faith is more than an emotional response to the gospel. You say, well, what is saving faith? This word faith or believe in your Bible, it's the same word, pastuo. When it's a noun, it's translated faith. When it's a verb, it's translated believe. What I find interesting is if you read John's Gospel, he uses the word 99 times, and all 99 times he translates it, or we translate it, believe, because it is the verb. He never uses a noun form in his Gospel. You know why? Because he saw faith as an action word. It's not a noun. And in your life, it is not a noun that you sit on a shelf somewhere and hang on to. It is a verb that moves you in your life. That's why when you read Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about the faith chapter. And what does it say? By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham left his country. By by faith, Moses switched teams. You see, faith is a verb. It is active in our lives. And when you try to translate that word, somebody has said it is to be persuaded of, to have confidence in, and to entrust yourself to. A great verse that captures that is John 2.24, where it says of Jesus, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. He was not giving himself over to them. You see, saving faith is more than believing about. It's more than trembling about. It is, as one Greek authority said, the movement of the subject onto the object. And the object is always Jesus Christ. Saving faith is not to talk about Jesus and say you believe. It's not to tremble about Jesus. It is to move yourself onto Jesus alone for your salvation. I like to repel. I don't like to rock climb. It's too much work. But I love to repel. I, I, I repelled for the first time in years ago in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, was up there with a guy who was real into it and, and uh, you know, he had his own equipment and everything and he took us up there, just a little group of us, and, and uh, I was waiting to go and in front of me was a girl and, and uh, she, he had her all harnessed in and had the rope tied and everything and explained it all to her. And, and the hard thing about rappelling, if you've ever done it, is you've got to go from vertical to horizontal and it's that first step. That's really the tough one. Because to really rappel, you've got to get Lean back and get yourself horizontal, and then you really get to enjoy the trip down the cliff. Well, this girl's standing there, and and, uh, she's obviously having difficulty, and so he starts to explain to her all the facts. He says, you know, this tree I'm tying it to has been here for years. Thousands of people have repelled. They've tied to this tree. And he talked about his rope and how good it was and how he checked it out before he came out here and how hundreds of people have gone down on this rope and how experienced he is and how he's never had anybody fall and and just kept telling her all these facts and she kept saying, I know, I know, I know. She acknowledged the facts. She was having an emotional experience because she was literally trembling but she didn't have faith. You know how I know she didn't have faith? Because she never moved. She acknowledged the fact she had an emotional experience she never repelled because she didn't have the faith to move the subject onto the object. I asked some guys to come up here. If you'll come up here now. I think I asked six guys. If I didn't, somebody who's stronger than I am, come up here. We're going to try to do something. If this doesn't work, somebody else will be preaching in the next service. I didn't ask any staff to come up here because I'm afraid they would let me go. Um, have you ever done a trust fall? Yeah. You have? Why don't you come do it? Um, I haven't done... I haven't done... Uh, yeah, come on up here. Okay, you guys stand three on each side. Where's the? Uh, need one more. Okay, my son is coming. That's scary. Um, are you guys? You guys do this thing. Do the opposite of that. Yeah, yeah. You had it. You had it right. Okay. All right. You guys come a little closer. (laughs) Now, this is higher than last night, so I'm I'm a little bit... uh, I can stand here on this ladder and tell you that I believe in these guys. I believe they're there. I'm not an atheist when it comes to these guys. I believe they're there. I believe that they're able to catch me if I fall. But I'm not really going to have faith unless I fall into their arms. That's when I entrust myself to them. Okay? All right. Here we go. All right. One, two, three. All right. Set me down gently. Thank you. A lot of us say we have faith. And what we're doing is we're standing where we've always stood and we're saying, I believe that Jesus exists. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe he rose again. I believe he's alive today. I believe he's able to save me. We get a little rapid heartbeat like I just got. But that's not saving faith. Saving faith is the movement of the subject onto the object. It's when I let go of everything else and entrust myself to Jesus Christ, and I say, Jesus, if you don't catch me, I'm doomed. That's saving faith. And James says, when you have that kind of saving faith, it will transform your life, it will produce fruit. One of my favorite verses is Romans 12, 1 and 2. In fact, I pray them every morning. Paul says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. That word reasonable is the Greek word logizomai, from which we get our word Logical. He says, on the basis of the mercies of God, what's that? The first 11 chapters of Romans, all about the gospel and how we're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And we could do nothing to add to that. We trust him. He puts his righteousness in our account and he changes us. Based on the mercies of God, Paul says, I want you to do a trust fall onto Jesus Christ. On the basis of the fact that he gave his life for you, the only logical thing for you to do is to give your life to him. We're going to close our service by taking communion together. We're going to take the bread and the cup and remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. And as we do that today, I would love to see you examine your heart. Say, God, am I guilty of just believing about you, about Jesus? Am I guilty of simply having some little emotional roller coasters in my life? Or do I have genuine saving faith? Have I actually let go of everything else I think and I believe in and entrust myself to Jesus Christ? And if not, I challenge you today. entrust yourself to him because he is able to save you and transform you and produce his life and his fruit in you to his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the bread and the cup, the simple reminder that Lord Jesus, you told us to do, to remember you. And as we remember back to what you did, Lord, I pray that you would give us today the faith and confidence to let go of everything else and to fall into your loving arms and trust in you alone for our salvation, to change our lives today and forever. We give you our thanks and we give you our praise in Jesus' name.